why does this entity exist? So I'm, I'm a usual big believer. The only entities you should have are legal entities. Yeah. If there is a legal reason with a with an actual charter yeah. that this thing exists. And there's a whole bunch of sometimes you need bankruptcy remote entities. Sometimes you got to put an asset on something. If it's not that, use a different dimension. Use the department. Use, use whatever other different. Use a project dimension. And that's when you get to managerial reporting versus accounting. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. If you have multiple subsidiaries, consolidating them could be a very involved process. If you don't have an ERP system that natively supports multi-entity functionality, your processes might start with recording intercompany loans and interest earned through your subsidiaries. Then you might need to allocate the corporate overheads and account payables to various subsidiaries. Then you need to complete adjusting entries followed by closing subsidiary books and then finally closing books for the parent entity. In today's episode, We invited a panel of cross-functional experts for a live interview on LinkedIn who brings significant expertise to discuss financial consolidations, business processes, best practices. We covered many grounds including the rationale for financial consolidation and appropriate architecture for the multi-entity organization. Finally, we covered difference between financial and operational integration of different organizations along with the best practices of financial consolidation. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hello everyone, welcome to today's show. And if you're joining for the first time, this is part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We get one topic related to digital uh, transformation. And we always have an expert panel that is willing to share their insights and wisdom. For today, we have a very exciting topic. It's called financial consolidation. I don't know how many people would find it exciting, but it could be exciting if you are really serious about saving money because this is where the opportunity is. So we are going to dig into all of that. But before that, we are going to start with everybody's intro. And I am going to start with my intro. If you don't know me, I am Sam Gupta. I am principal at Elevate IQ. Elevate IQ is the independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm. We help our clients with uh, system selection, contract negotiation, business process re-engineering, ERP implementation. And then I'm actually going to move to Chris for his intro. Thanks, Sam. Hi, I'm Chris Garadini. I'm the owner and CEO of Turnkey Technologies. We've been implementing Dynamics ERP and CRM solutions for 30 plus years. I love the topic of intercompany consolidation. So looking forward to the conversation. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Chris. Abu, can I move to you next for your intro, if you don't mind? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name's Abu. We, I'm the owner and founder of our Penny Management Tech Corp. Uh, we've been been business for the last 12 years. Uh, we are a Sage X3 partner, and we provide services in you know all sorts of different industries, from food and manufacturing, distribution, and chemicals. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Abel. And uh, Aaron, can I move to you next for your intro? Sure, Aaron School. I'm a partner and the managing director of Aventus Advisor Group. We're an on-demand CFO, controller, and accounting firm. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here. And Tom, can I move to you next for your intro? Yes, thanks, Sam, and greetings, everyone. My name is Tom Rodden. I'm the former CIO at Varian Medical Systems, uh, currently uh, doing ERP consulting, have been in IT for the last 25 years, 
and looking forward to our conversation. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Tom. Bob, can I move to you next for your intro? Thanks, Sam. Bob Feathers at Bindable. We're a SaaS provider in the insure tech space. We enable our clients' technology to do alternate distribution for PNC insurance products. But I come here with over 30 years of experience in manufacturing, operations, production control, and ERP implementations. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Bob. And if you are in the audience, uh, you know, make sure you guys are going to be posting your questions. I don't have a ton of questions today, so I am going to be relying on you guys to send your questions so that we can spend our hour. Before we do that, I mean, we are going to start with the first question right now. Chris, I'm actually going to start with you for the first question. And it's really going to be, I know that you have a very exciting story that we were discussing in the pre-show. So I'm pretty sure you are interested in uh, discussing that. But you can, if you can talk about the whole process of how the intercompany consolidation is going to work, that'll be amazing. Sure. Appreciate that, Sam. So there's there's different techniques on how people do consolidations and eliminations. And typically what's happening is you have a couple, two different entities in your ERP system, maybe maybe three, four, whatever. And so the, the concept of consolidation is where you combine different entities for combined financial reporting. Consolidate, you could consolidate in whole. They could be fractional consolidations, meaning maybe there's different ownership structures. We often see a hierarchical tree that represents ownership between legal entities and it almost forms the what's the percentage roll-ups and things but so in in we do consolidations again there's different ways you see people doing a lot of people out there in excel making a lot of manual entries and combining things there high risk there because of moving data um, companies also create a consolidation company the benefit of that is permanency as opposed to having what we would call almost a virtual consolidation which means you run a report it combines and does the math but there's no real hard copy audit trail of that and so what happens when you have yet that third company you consolidate into that company and you can actually make hard entries for eliminations and eliminations are where if you're selling between the companies you can't recognize the revenue twice or the expense twice so the eliminations happen but that third company for consolidations gives you a lot more permanence in the types of entries that are made, right? As opposed to it's in the sky and it's vapor, you're marking a financial statement. So that's one example of just the consolidation process. Um, there's a lot more to say about intercompany. I was telling Sam that I've got a, a project I'm looking at that they have 55 QuickBooks companies. They're doing a half a billion. You're like, okay, so consolidation and financial reporting and eliminating entries is a nightmare for people like that because taking all that data externally, you're managing it all by hand. Again, you think about the randomness. Oh, somebody posted another entry you get the problems there. So again, as you look at structures and ERP systems with lots of entities, and that's the conversation I'm having right now about where do I put these 55 QuickBooks companies? Do I put them in 55 entities in a traditional ERP or do I stick them into a single company in an ERP where I use it a dimensional concept for that entity? And so again, then we start talking about intra-intercompany type of entry. So um, there's a lot of complexity there. And like I said, it's a great topic. Sam, I'll stop there. If you want me to continue, I can. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in discussing some more problems overall they are getting. I mean, they are coming to you for a reason. So 55 entities in QuickBooks, that's a very interesting project in general, right? So what are they running into in terms of the challenges? How much admin effort are we talking about? How many accountants? Is it an army? <laughs> How many sure, do they? sure. There's, there's 18 accountants managing those 55 QuickBooks companies. And again, the, the process in terms of the close, I got some of those details. It takes about six weeks to get to the point where they can generate some financials. And you think about that's a long delay. You know, we talk about rear view mirror type of perspectives. And, uh, you know, again, what you look forward in a, in, a, in a future architecture is you're getting those entries real time, which means if you run a profit loss statement mid-month, you're getting your do-to-do-froms. And, and even more so, some, some systems support a higher degree of granularity of those intercompany entries and even to drill back to the source company. So, um, but again, what you want to look for in the architecture is to have the entries where you can configure them, you know how they're made. If there's accounts payable and you're doing intercompany AP, which these guys create 50 checks to the same vendor. So, you know, you want to have one vendor, you want to do those entries, but tracking the do to do froms and then the cash balancing. Everybody forgets about the cash. The cash is the one that's like, hey, wait, you're paying my bills, but my cash is here in your cash. So even cash reconciliations, and you think about do these people write checks to each other? But again, that financial reporting, all manual, all externally, it, it's time. It's time and it's accuracy. I think those are the biggest features. And even auditability, right? You know, because everybody's saying, well, where did you do the math? Outside the system. So Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. Uh, so, Ebu, I'm actually going to come to you about your story. Uh, if you might have any financial consolidation stories that you have seen. And if you have any insight about the story that Chris shared in terms of the challenges that they might be seeing when they are managing this in 55 entities in QuickBooks. 
Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, we come across a lot of companies uh, in an intercompany space. Uh, most of that happens because of acquisitions. Uh, you know, there's a holding company which acquires one company, then goes on and acquires another company. And then, you know, you obviously have to create fin- uh, consolidated uh, financial statements. So it, it brings a lot of challenges, especially in that manufacturing space, because, you know, you're doing all these inventory movements now as well between companies, right? Now you have to track those inventory movements. You have to track the cost of goods for those inventory movements. How much are you selling those goods for to the other company? So all of those transactions must be tracked. And that's where we find a lot of problems, you know, when companies are doing it, they're unable to sift through their data and figure out what what are the exact intercompany elimination. It is very typical for companies to take, you know, like Chris said, weeks to do the intercompany eliminations. One thing I also saw as a best practice would be to have a separate elimination company that does allow you to have that clarity of journal entries. You can always go back and see, you know, why you did certain certain entries. But I think choosing the right software is also key. There are very few real intercompany software out there in the market, right? And if you have the right intercompany software, then you can really start tracking those transactions down to a granular level and then start, uh, you know, making those accurate intercompany eliminations. Okay, very interesting commentary there. And um, since you mentioned the the inventory movement, and when I talk to a lot of different CFOs and, 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 and accounting folks, in their mind, they always consider sort of inventory to be more of the operations problem. Finance is my problem, accounting, you know, as long as you are talking about GL, that's my problem, but inventory is not my problem. That's almost like operations. But, uh, you know, you have a lot of background in accounting as well, right, Abu? Uh, mm-hmm. So from your perspective, when we look at the inventory, that's where the real problems are. That's what drives pretty much everything from the accounting perspective as well. And when we look at the inventory that is going to be shared across the entities, and you are going to have a lot of problems overall when you are trying to consolidate eliminate, right? So mm-hmm. in your experience, when you look at the inventory, have you seen any sort of challenges overall from the inventory perspective, these specific challenges that you would like to share that you have seen in case of your uh, uh, multi-entity consolidations? Sure. I mean, so I mean, the key is to track inventory movement, right? So you're, you're moving one asset from one company to the other, right? So from a financial perspective, it has to be an arm's length transaction, right? So when we yeah. come across companies, uh, you know, that are in the process of, you know, raising funds or one or, you know, doing an IPO, for example, we find the accounting sales twice, for example, right? Yeah. Uh, right? That's a very common problem. They're not taking into account the proper cost of the product, right? So you cannot sell to your other company at a differential price, essentially, right? So you have to take into account all of those factors uh, when you're doing consolidation. And that's where, you know, we were helping a company implement this intercompany uh, systems yeah. and they were about to go public and then the auditors found their revenue was actually twice because they were double counting the revenue, right? So that was a fun <laughs> uh, hit they had to take just before the IPO. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for those insights. So Aaron, I'm actually going to move to you if you have any specific stories that you might be able to share of the intercompany. Uh, you know, how did it maybe from the system perspective, uh, was it managed as the dimensions the way Chris mentioned? I don't know if you are going to have any specific perspective there. I can see at least a million issues there uh, with that approach. <laughs> so, so share your story and, and, and comment on the stories that have been shared so far. Sure. So Sam, I'm actually glad you're sitting down for this because I would say something that's usually off off my normal topic, uh, my stance is you're actually going to need for for large consolidations, you're going to need a heavy computer system. Again, there are consolidation engines that are out there from software packages that that are also good GLs. We can go into like which what products are better at a different discussion, but I would say I'll give you a simple example of how how this uh, story I ran across this before that. So anyone, any finance and accounting person that's dealing in intercompany, intercompany is the, 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 literally the worst. It is the biggest headache that, that is out there for, uh, for any sizable finance organization. It is also possibly the worst place to get positioned in a company because you, you, it's, it's, it's like, just like parts of operations. You only are noticed if something's messed up. If everything consolidates and everything is clean and all the answers are there. That means you've done a perfect job, a Herculean perfect job. No one notices. You only notice for the mistakes. It is it is terrible. And also, the smartest people in accounting are usually, if they're not technical accountants, they're dealing with intercompany. So the story I have is like I was working at a, a multinational bank. They had about a billion dollars worth of unreconciled intercompany transactions. Oh, wow. Uh, 
they generated automate uh, automatically every month over a hundred thousand intercompany entries. Yeah, frightening. Yeah, I see some eyes popping up there. Yes, yeah, so this is this is a uh, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. And they spent over two years, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know how many man hours and how many consultants and people trying to resolve this and fix it um, from a go forward basis. One thing that I think is consistently forgotten, and Chris, you mentioned a little bit with the concept of do to do from, if you think about it as simple journal entry, and this is the one tip I would say, if you take away anything from what I'm saying, take away this one tip. If you're thinking of a two-sided journal entry, right, you've got your debit and your credit, or you can have multiple debits and multiple credits, just from that, any intercompany entry also needs to have an identifier. And how, now how, you do, how you use that identifier, you can create a different field, whatever you want to do, we'll put that aside, has to have an identifier. What is the offsetting business unit? You can say business unit, you can say legal entity, this gets intrapers, inter, but you have to have that in every line, in every debit, in every credit. You need to know who this transaction was with. Now, if you do it well and you have it in a separate field, that's a part of that actual journal entry. It makes not only consolidation, but reconciliations a lot easier. Where this is going to become incredibly important is if you attempt to like spin off a unit, if you attempt to sell a unit. It, all these other things, if you have unreconciled intercompany, you, as you, you mentioned before, like inventory is moving around. What happens if you infuse cash, which we've seen a lot? You infuse cash into a company. Now you have literally invest in sub. There's legal ramifications for that, especially if you uh, – what happens if there's a lawsuit and you're looking for the asset, even if you're bankruptcy or remote. I can – all these other situations. So this is an incredibly important piece of architecture, and as Chris – and a good comment back on what Chris said – and I'm going to riff off you, and if you and if I in, interpret it incorrectly, I'm just saying I'm. I apologize, Chris. It, do not just have a piece of software magically do this for you. You have to be able to go back to the little the granular line of the journal entry, and to know because if you can't trace it back to that, guarantee you there will be trouble later. And as we say, it's like whenever time we look at a company personally, whenever ever I look at a company, there's two things that are going to make you require a more powerful general ledger. So the first is multi-entity, and the second yeah. is FX. Anytime you have any of those, you're going to have to start looking at a much more powerful um, general ledger. You can do manual consolidation for even up to, like this is Chris, up to 50 entities. If each entity is standalone by itself, managed by itself, and a consolidated PL is not used for managerial reasons. It's used for SEC filing reasons. It's used for other things. If you're not making a decision at that high corporate level, you can then you can get away with manual consolidation. The second you have to make a business decision based off of consolidation, that's when you know, more real-time decisions, treasury functions, all this. How are you going to move cash around to different uh, legal entities? If you, uh, I, I, we can go on and on and on. Uh, this so the thing is, this is not for the faint of heart. This requires more actually than just intercompany concept. This this involves treasury. This involves cash management. I'm going to pause now because I'm probably way going over way over time. Yeah, and uh, you know, Aaron, I like to have fun with you, and I'm going to have fun with you today as well. And you don't want to say it, ERP. I get it, man. You know, you want to call it as the what is that hardcore computing engine? I, I get it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> But let's let's talk a little bit about that, okay? So let's say hardcore computing engine. What kind of features are we talking about? And one more point that you mentioned that you know what, when we are talking about managing these entities separately versus making the business decisions in the consolidated manner. So what are we losing? Let's say if I'm just a dumb guy, you know, I'm trying to manage my business as the 50 entity separately, and and I just don't know enough to be honest. So what am I losing? Let's say if I'm doing that. What are you losing if you have just the like, separate entity? You know, I'm not combining, just adding the uh, my financial statement for the SEC filing. I'm not really making the business decisions, uh, you know, based on the consolidated insight that I can get the mass and data, uh, you know, and so, I can make business decisions based on that. I'm not doing that. I'm simply managing it separately. What am I losing? So, You're going to jail. <laughs> Not from a business decisioning. So, Tom, so not not from a business decisioning, though, right? So, unless, so I'll say, a consolidated business decision is only is needed if these individual units are subsets. And it, think about what would you actually need a full consolidated 
decision based off of. Sometimes it's cash management. Sometimes it's general profitability. It's, it's the number one thing that I think you need much more of a consolidated view for is cash. And a lot of a lot of your smaller entities, or especially your foreign entities, are funded. So, and then you're dealing with tax with like uh, cost plus, which is probably not for this, <laughs> not for this. But each one of these situations, a consolidated view, it's definitely needed for get your treasury's going to need it. Depends upon there's certain pieces, and this is what you mentioned. You could not go to jail, but you could viol- end up accidentally violating covenants of bonds. So if you have depends upon like for your for your your debt securities. Uh, or any other type of inv- investor agreement or bank agreement, if it, depending upon which level of the entity it's made with, if you don't have a consolidated view up to who owns that particular entity, you could be in violation. So the the ma- so the major decision I find from a consolidated view is usually cash, and it all depends on like what you define as like like a full consolidated view. If you're t- like a, if you think of like a giant global entity corporation. They're probably analyzing things from a business unit perspective, as opposed to a what is what does the whole thing look like? Because it's it, it's it's that's like I, analogies are always weird, you know, steering an aircraft carrier, right? You care about each of the individual units, but it's I've not really seen a, a need except from a cash management perspective to make real time decisions based off of based off of a full consolidated view. It doesn't mean you don't need to consolidate and consolidate, you know, relatively quickly. But and and you also think about it, there's a difference between consolidating to the top parent coast, so you have an entire consolidation, versus consolidated by a uh, by a business unit. So if I've got seventeen legal entities, right, and for, for whatever's in one particular business unit, and then that's rolls up to the top, I still need to be able to consolidate the seventeen to get a view of my business unit health. And there's a whole bunch of different reasons of why they're all separate. But the general principle I'll go back to is if you have to make a business decision based off of the combination of entities, and if you can't combine those quickly and make and make that business decision, you're losing time, you're making, you're making uneducated, or not data based driven decisions. And that gets you into trouble every time. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Aaron, for that. Uh, Tom, I'm actually going to move to you, and I love your comment about going to jail, and I'm pretty sure you are going to have very interesting story tale. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe... I'm going to start a chant. I'm going to start a chant, lock him up, Sam, uh, <laughs> at the end of this. So. Yeah, please do. So, yeah, share some stories that you have seen, uh, you know, either because of the lack of consolidation or, uh, you know, consolidation issues, and if you have any other comments related to whatever has been discussed so far, please go ahead. Yeah, no, this has been actually really interesting um, because everybody comes at it from uh, a, a different perspective. I, I know we, we've got IT strongly represented here in various ways and finance sounds like it's pretty well represented. I think uh, a number of people on the call have some some strong finance background. You know, I don't bring uh, the strong finance background. I actually am more of an operations guy. Uh, supply chain operations guy specifically, um, and and maybe an order management type operations guy. So I I know enough in these other areas to be dangerous. But um, so uh, I I came at this uh, as I thought about it initially, Sam, thinking, um, so complexity is the enemy. If if you are Berkshire Hathaway, uh, and I know uh, one of the CIOs over there, we've had chats in the past about how they operate their conglomerate. And it really is just a collection of completely unrelated entities and they have no intercompany interaction. They all operate independently, are all judged independently on their performance. And the consolidation is kind of what you were saying, in which case, you know, you wouldn't go to jail if you were the, uh, the Oracle from Omaha, because you could simply add it up. Um, everything is completely separate. And, um, and, and again, there are complexities even to adding it up, I know, too, that, uh, that are uh, important. But, but in a sense, you know, the, the complexity that a lot of us worry about in consolidation terms is all those intercompany transactions and all of the potential double counting and the need for eliminations. And, and so I, I do agree, that's, that is maybe the core uh, challenge. Um, but I'll, I'll come back to that as to, you know, even, even in the Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> example, where, where problems could arise. So, but if you focus on process complexity, and again, things like, okay, uh, we're going to do an intercompany 
transaction, one legal entity to another. Uh, there are degrees of complexity. There's a straight, I made it in the US, I sold it over to France. We had some intercompany uh, transfer pricing and I, I took profit in, on my US books and uh, it was with actually some margin above cost. And then in France, they sold it to an end customer for additional margin. Their cost was the selling price. You know, and when you get to that, that consolidation process at, at the end of periods, you, know, you really need to say, okay, well, I've got to take out some profit and inventory in the UK. I've got to you know, really make this a clean, consolidated picture of what we achieved financially. Um, and so there will be some eliminations. But you know, when, when you when you think about it that way, okay, that that sounds not not incredibly complex. Then introduce a dropship process, and you have new layers of complexity, right? Then introduce maybe uh, one of the things that Varian had as an example, um, where we might build a machine in the U.S. Um, and sell that machine with some margin uh, to our sister company in Taiwan. And in Taiwan, they had an arrangement with some customers where they would install the equipment and it has a 20 year life and they wouldn't sell it to them in a conventional sense. They would say, we're going to create a service contract for the next 20 years. Um, effectively, it's like a subscription till the, the end of the useful life of the equipment. Um, and you're going to pay us you know, some fraction of the total value uh, over the next 20 years. And what would happen in Taiwan then was they would say, well, we bought this piece of equipment from the US, it was an inventory. We're gonna now make it a fixed asset at the value that we procured it from the US. And then we will depreciate that fixed asset and we'll be charging this subscription or service contract amount on an annualized basis to the Taiwanese customer. You know, and you're like, okay, well, now I've got Taiwan with you know, a, a piece of equipment as a fixed asset that is valued at their buy price, which was higher than the cost in the U.S. to make it. Uh, that intercompany difference is really a, uh, a now an, a, a, a false fixed asset valuation when you roll things up and consolidate. So I've got to do not not margin or cost, but fixed asset intercompany elimination. And you know we're depreciating it over in Taiwan at the buy price from the U.S., but that that is an exaggerated value from a consolidated point of view because you know we're going to make an adjustment when we roll all the books together, even for depreciation. And of course, then that's going to have an impact on the P&L. And and so you know this this can really get hairy if you have complex business processes. So. So that's kind of one piece of it that I had discussed with a couple of my finance colleagues uh, uh, last week uh, and, you know, getting ready to have a chat with all of you about this. You know, and then they were saying, well, don't forget, there's also I think Aaron mentioned this. There's also loans or infusions of cash that we make and, and there are intercompany eliminations related to that, which has nothing to do with uh, the traditional supply chain type transfer of goods or services. And then they said, and, you know, don't forget hedging. I was like, what do you mean? Don't forget hedging. They're like, well, you know, if, if the U.S., as an example, at Varian was doing all of the global hedging and, you know, to make sure that, you know, as we sell deals into the Ukraine and the Ukrainian currency plummets when they're invaded, that we actually hedge the value that we have told the street we're going to get out of Ukraine for the deals we've made there. So, but the U.S. does the hedging, um, and then the U.S. charges the cost over to the Ukrainian legal entity, and and again there is now a cost in the U.S. There is a sale, if you will, of that service or that hedge service to Ukraine, right? So they're they're now duplicating um, uh, costs and 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 revenues, if you will, from the hedging process that also might need to be eliminated in some sense when you consolidate. So anyway, the, the point was, there's a whole collection of different types of interactions that can lead to a need for intercompany eliminations of some kind, 
um, not just inventory, not just margin sales. Um, so that that was to me sort of a, 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 an eye-opening thing because as a supply chain guy, I hadn't really thought about some of these other areas that might require similar handling. And um, and then even circling back to the simplistic Berkshire Hathaway, we're all completely separate. We have no intercompany. It's just roll it up and you're done. Again, one of the one of the interesting uh, challenges that I think any significantly sized uh, global or or multinational company has is the the differences in the way that GL accounts, for example, may be defined in the chart of accounts in various legal entities. And uh, we've had cases I know where I used to work where the the mapping would get quite hairy, right? So you might have different accounts and you just say, well, account A maps to account B when I consolidate. And and that, we're not even talking about eliminations now, right? We're just saying mapping to do the roll up. But then you might have certain GLs where uh, different types of costs, different types of assets or, or value roll up. And it might not even be a one-to-one kind of mapping. You might have to get to sub-accounts in order to really get it clean and, and be able to roll it up properly. Um, and so even in the case of you know, this Berkshire Hathaway example that I rolled out, if, if France you know, is an acquisition, um, some company over there, and they say, we need to consolidate that with the US, and they have no interactions whatsoever between the companies, just mapping the chart of accounts, mapping the, the, uh, the P&L elements, uh, in a clean way in order to just do the math, do the addition, that could get messy. Um, so I, it, for me, this is a, this is a, it's an Aaron's point. This is an area fraught with risk of getting screwed up and probably very little reward if you do all the mapping perfectly and you know all of these complexities and you handle them all right. It's just, okay, well, that nice job. <laughs> so... Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, so, Bob, I'm actually going to come to you. And, you know, right now, uh, Aaron spoke about the the financial uh, consolidation complexity. Uh, Tom spoke about the, the supply chain and operations complexity. And I know your favorite topic always is going to be unit of measure and the inventory valuation. And in my mind, you know, if you are running these 50 uh, you know, company separately. And by the way, I, my assumption is going to be that you are looking for some sort of operational integration. Uh, if you are managing just like an investor, and sometimes uh, Tom's example, when he mentioned that Workshire uh, pathway, in their case, they are intentionally keeping these companies separate because they have to sell them. If they tightly integrate operationally, then sometimes uh, it could be harder. That's why those, uh, you know, investors don't like to integrate. But if you want to make money, invest this. You have to integrate operationally. The more you integrate, the more synergies you are going to have, the more cost-saving opportunities you are going to have. So from your experience, when you look at the unit of measure, when you look at the inventory valuation, in my experience, that's where the real complexity is. Bob, so when you look at the financial consolidation and look at these two things, how would you uh, describe that? Yeah, so again, I agree. There's a lot to unpack here, right? So one of the things we touched upon is treating each entity as its own, which we kind of did in a way, right? Each entity across our you know, global, we are a private corporations, so of course, you know, do our deal about treasury and things like that. And each work center, you know, or plant was its own legal entity. We we're kind of addressing it as its own, but we were starting to see synergies between the plants where we could start to transfer materials or find saying, hey, the plant in America has a bigger press and can run this much faster. We're going to print it here and then send it up to Canada to be finished. Um, so one methodology you can do, again, so, you know, so going back to what Chris was saying, you know, you've got to get your foundation set. You've got to try to, if you, in our case, we're lucky, right? We said, we're going to, we're all separate, and now we're going to build this global ERP. So we're starting from scratch. It wasn't like we were doing that acquisition. It was like, here's our starting point. So the starting point was, all right, let's understand how we're going to, transactionally work with each other? What do these transactions look like? Start to set up those accounts to make sure the to's and from's, uh, including all these kind of contra accounts and, you know, where, how's money going to move? We kind of touched upon, you know, there's this whole ARAP and it's like to and from's and to's and from's for every single plant. And you have all these line items like to Canada, from the U.S., you know, just you got them all lined up 
on all the all the all the sides of it. So you get that all set up. One way we did it sometimes was if you have the appetite or the cash flow issues is you sell everything at cost. You just say and you make an agreement. You say we're just going to give this to you at our cost, and so just it's just inventory at cost into your side, inventory at cost, and then you're going to sell it to your end customer, and whatever you make, we're just going to split it up, and you're just going to kind of put money back into our side based on that profitability. The problem, of course, is cash flow, because one plant's putting all that money out, and they may not see money for 60 days because it may go to Canada, and then another 30 days of you know working on the product to finish it, and then it goes to the client. So it takes a long time for that money. So that can be a difficult. So typically what happens is you don't. You kind of come up with an agreement. We're going to, we believe the profit's going to be X. So we just come up with a formula and say, we're going to make 15% margin. We're going to sell it to you. And then we just know what that number is. And we've got to go and eliminate it. We've just got to figure out at the end of the month how to eliminate that entry. Um, but again, yeah, it's like you can be simple or it could be complex. Uh, but I go back to what Tom said. You've got to try to simplify it as best you can. You've got to try to map it out as best you can because uh, it, gets, it gets complicated very quickly. And we had, a, we had also equipment too, transferring equipment where it's like we don't need this, this piece of equipment and take it off our books, put it on your books, and what's the value of it. And, and so it got, got, you know, that got complicated too. Luckily, in most of our case, it was this old equipment that was already fully depreciated. It was like, hey, we don't need this. You guys want it? Take it off our hands and uh, use it. So uh, that's my input so far and i think there's a lot more to come okay amazing thank you so much uh and you have a comment you unmuted yourself yeah so so let's be clear we're, we're talking tech within your company a couple of things you have that i would mention while they need to be separate concepts and they and which will require if you're really talking separate actual different ledgers you've got statutory reporting which is the different reporting you have to do in each individual country that you're in. Yep. You've got tax reporting, which is separate than statutory reporting. Yep. Um, and then you've got wherever your parent domicile is, that report, which is technically global statutory reporting, which is still statutory, which is the, con the full consolidated view. And none of this has anything to do with business analytics, which is an entirely separate word. Yep. So I... Um, I bring all these up because each one of these things has a ramification for each other part. For instance, like if you're talking about moving assets, well, maybe oh, I'll bring, just bring up a quick issue. Like you could very well say, all right, so I'm going to provide a service to or I'm going to push a cost on for tax planning purposes. So I push a cost onto an, a, a, another legal entity. And then what happens when the, the that foreign government says, no, I don't like that, how you did that. I'm going to reject that. So you have to unwind that. So well, I bring all this up because you want to think each one of those has to be thought of separately because you're probably having a technically a multiple journal, uh, multiply reflected journal entry set for each separate ledger, which is really freaking complicated. Uh, but I think I'll go back to where I think, Bob, you're absolutely correct is if you, if you boil it down to what is the actual economic transaction you're doing first, exactly as you say, that is that is the smartest way to go from an architecture perspective. And then think of how am I going to account for tax? How am I going to count for statutory? Uh, and then yes, I'll use the I'll use the evil world you were going to probably need in the ERP to pull us all off. Especially 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 multinational. But each one of these will require the caveat is you need your tax team involved. And so they can and this doesn't even deal with regulatory reporting. The second the second you have to do that, which all pulls from the GL as well. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Aaron, for that. Um, so, Chris, I'm actually going to come back to you. And uh, I think there is always uh, this sort of misunderstanding in understanding how to structure the, the multi-entity structure. As you had pointed out in your story, there are many different ways. Some companies, you know, they simply like to track as the, the dimensions. Uh, some companies like to treat it as more of the investment holding the way uh, Tom was trying to describe uh, you know, so have you seen any specific best practices when it comes to how you would structure the business and if you have seen any issues because of how they had structured? Sure. And architecture is a great question because even as we were like playing around with this, those 55 QuickBooks companies are all in different nationalities. So if you think about multi-entity where they all end up at a common database as a dimension, well, you compromise localization to Aaron's point. And if you think yeah. about foreign markets, he's right. Tax, localizations. Yeah. 
integrations of the government. So it could compromise your architecture based on that. Now, the U.S.-based operation I'm dealing with, they could fit because their their challenges they want to they need common vendors, common items. So there's a lot of synergies to put them in a single entity, as opposed to the pain of replicating your vendor master and your item master across the across the field. So it really depends on the nature and the relationship between the entities as well. We've got to ask that question: Are they related? What do they do? And again, are they transferring products? And I I, I had some features that we saw where. Great. You wanted to buy from another company, you did a PO, it created the, automatically the corresponding SO. So they'd ship. So there are some two-way intercompany to move inventory because inventory is a real challenge, but the SOP sales order, purchase order relationship works really, really well. The other big uh, problem we see in architecture is labor. And again, this is back to the question is why do we have the separate legal entities in the first place? Is it because of localization? Is it jurisdictional? I had one where um, his family members, they had four. They had four entities. And I swear, every one of them had a, they, they offset the fiscal years by three months. And it was just ridiculous because what they did is they took manufacturing and there were 12 operations. They each got credit for three. And they created four companies and what a, what a convolution it was for the purpose. But back to the point of why did we create the separate entities? And I had a group I was working with that had 1,300 employees. But they worked on projects everywhere, different companies. So labor sharing and the intercompany related to labor and taxes and benefits is really, to Aaron's point, very complex. Again, we're talking about transfer and inventory. Okay, you know, normally there's a price level because your other entity is a customer and you give them a price level and whether you take 5% or you go at 0%, you know, I mean, there's different rules to automate the, the pricing and costing back and forth, but it's labor exchanges that get complex. And that's where I made the comment about the granularity of the intercompany and do to do from. So we've had some where you get, you get two accounts, right? That's not enough if you're dealing with the payroll and all that minutia. So, uh, but yeah, the architecture considerations, why do we have the separate entities? Is it geographically? Is it family? Is it why? And, you know, because again, we see a lot of them like, okay, you didn't need to do that. We could have separated that detail within a single, anyway. So, but yes, there's a lot of considerations and, uh, and efficiency. And you look at, and, and most people will set it up if they don't realize, okay, how much maintenance is there going to be? How much manual effort? You really got to articulate that because your whole conception, you want to make it easy, right? So go ahead, Aaron. So Chris, I'm going to add to that. So it says, exactly. So it's, why did, so go back, let's get even more into, why does this entity exist? So I'm, I'm a usual big believer, the only entities you should have are legal entities. Yeah. If there is a legal reason with a with an actual charter yeah. that this thing exists, and there's a whole bunch of sometimes you need bankruptcy remote entities, sometimes you got to put an asset on something. If it's not that, use a different dimension. Use a department. Use use whatever other different. Use a project dimension, and that's when you get to managerial reporting versus accounting. And the account is so so that's what I would say for. And then two is if you combined. Why does this entity exist? Or then why does this transaction exist? And then the third question is, is how is this? Tra how should this should before before you figure out how to? How should this transaction be be reflected in every entity? You ask those three questions, then the architecture happens. And to give you one simple example, we, we mentioned a little bit, which is another bane is allocations. Why do these allocations exist? Is it a managerial thing only? Then you actually don't need a journal. Careful, I gotta be careful what I'm saying here. You probably probably don't need a journal entry. If it's a tax strategy to, to allocate costs, absolutely you need a journal entry because you need legal proof that that thing happened. So if you go for those three, uh, why does an entity exist? Why does this transaction, what is what's the economic reason for this transaction? And then how should it look? Ask those three questions each time will help you with your with your architecture. Okay, amazing. Uh, I'm actually going to come to you. I don't know if you had any comment. You unmuted yourself, so maybe you unmuted for your turn. Uh, sure. So yeah, so the question is going to be for you, best practices and horror stories that you have seen based on the multi-entity architecture. And uh, I think Aaron made one comment that you should only be creating the entities when it is going to be legal. But I have seen scenarios where some companies, let's say if you are in the manufacturing business, and you are going to have a little distribution arm here, and sometimes you have the tax advantages, right? Uh, or cost advantages, because you are going to have a little bit of tax recovery there, right? So they typically like to keep it separate from that perspective. So I don't know what you have seen in your perspective. Would you like to simply look at the legal entity, create entities that way? Or would you also look at some of the cost energies that other businesses are doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very complex question, right? So I think it also boils down to what's the future business strategy going to be. So we have a client which is a large chemical company and they had these multiple divisions. Their initial business strategy was they're going to you know, buy six different chemical companies, consolidate it, and then sell it off. 
So they did that, you know, they brought everything together into one single database. And then, you know, the economic conditions chain, now they only want to spin off one unit, right? So now the person who's buying is, now you have to split that company out. You have to carve it out from your, you know, entire database. So it became like a huge project for us. You know, it came over to us to, how do we hide the data? How do we carve out the data from this, you know, one IT infrastructure, right? So, and that can become extremely costly as well. So, you know, so that is also a key consideration, right? Where do you see the business going? Is this, are you planning to spin it off at a future time? Then, you know, that's how you're going to structure it. The other important thing that I, you know, maybe Aaron would have more to say on it is, you know, a lot of companies do that transaction at cost between intercompanies. You know, my understanding is, you know, from an accounting perspective, that's not really allowed, right? It has to be an arm length transaction. So for example, you have a business in United States and you're selling to Canada, you can't really sell it at cost because the U.S. government wants to charge its profit, right? It has to be an arm length transaction. You have to show the revenue and the profits in the U.S. entity so that they can charge the right tax on it. Uh, so that's often a mistake a lot of companies do. And when, you know, they're going out to raise an IPO or funding, you know, and then they have to some very complex uh, eliminations to you know to make sure the appropriate costs and profits are charged to the right entity. From a from a best practice perspective, I think having the right accounting system is the key. Right, if you're going to manage intercompany in QuickBooks, it becomes really complicated. There are a lot of other software, so the software has to be built for intercompany. You know, one of the uh, parts from here talked about you know you create a PO, it automatically creates an SO. Right, so you need to be able to track those you know intercompany transactions in a different GL account, for example, right? So you need to be able to say when transactions happen between these two customers, it's an intercompany transaction. When transactions happen between these two suppliers, vendors, it's an intercompany transaction. Uh, you know, how do you, you know, the journal entry, you know, you can, you need to have a whole mapping engine built in so that when you do the journal entry, the automatically the due to and the due forms, you know, get created automatically. Uh, you need to identify from a, from a tracking perspective, you know, how is the GL flowing? You know, why, when a certain type of GL entry happens, uh, you know, you want to put a, be able to automatically put a tag on it so that when you're doing consolidations at a later stage, you can identify those transactions right away, take it out from your GL. Again, you know, we talked about having different general ledgers. You know, there are accounting systems out there where you can have a shared general ledger. You know, you can have one GL for all the companies, you can have one GL or um, you can have different GLs for different companies. You can have what you call a reporting ledger. You know, so you have different general ledger accounts for different companies, but when it comes time to report it, you can have all the transactions flow to a different GL, right? So all of those then mapping issues come into place, how to identify the transaction. So all of those considerations have to be kept in mind, um, you know, when designing your intercompany operations. And generally, you know, the complexity comes in when you're manufacturing uh, when you have inventory movement, for example, a client of ours, they have two companies in uh, Canada. So they bought, so they have a manufacturing order. So they order to the other company in Canada, then they sell to this other company in Canada. And now they, but the end customer is in the U.S. So now the, the other Canadian company sells to the other company in U.S. And now they're going to sell to the customer, right? So how do you track all those uh, pricing, all the costs, right? So it comes really, you know, the first thing I would say you have to look at what's the business strategy. Right. What's the five year plan? And then, you know, you structure your IT system, you structure your architecture based on that. Okay, go ahead, Aaron. So I I would be careful of one word that you used Mm -hmm. and that's sell. So if you think about it, is it actually a sale? And from from a business perspective, so if you have, say, five different call it divisions, business unit entities in five different locations and each one from a manufacturing perspective touches the product somehow. Right. And say each one for some reason has its own legal entity. Is it actually a sale versus are you just touching the project product doing something? Because what you'll get into, I don't, I don't want to say the word trouble, but where you could misrepresent and honestly just fool yourself as the company by accident is if you reflect something as a sale, that's not really a sale. Now that will happen if the business entity, legal unit, whatever word we want to use, does transactions outside of just the company. So if you have a warehouse 
And that has business that's not only used for the company, but also used for outside. And you, so you have invoices that people are paying to use your warehouse or whatever that is that are outside the company. That's when it could theoretically be a sale. If that doesn't happen, if it's just in a, literally an internal unit, an internal company, careful of the word using the word sale. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the scenario, right? So, sure. yeah, you know, if you're who owns the asset, right, at the end of the day, right? If it's going across to different companies to get some work done, then maybe it's a vendor transaction, right? It's a purchase or it's a service transaction rather than a sale, right? So, so, what's the actual economic transaction here? Yeah. So, so I guess the basic point is very complex. It's hard to define, <laughs> right? And it becomes even more complex when you know, you have, you know, you're crossing boundaries, geographical boundaries. The only guarantee I can give everyone is you're going to get it wrong. (laughs) I I have never in my thousand year life here ever seen it done perfectly. There is always a piece of complexity because the world is ever changing. But the tip I'll go back to, the, the one tip I can give is if you can on every line identify the counterparty, that will save you a lot of grief. Okay, and just to be clear, Aaron, so the sale is going to be an external sale. If you have the internal sale, that is probably not going to be a sale, right? You're about to say something. It depends. A foreign government might view that as a sale. You might might do a cost plus whatever tax thing to call it a sale. But from an intercompany perspective, where you're really going to get into trouble is if you have a transaction and you can't identify the counterparty. So think about it. A do to and a do from, if you just book things to intercompany receivable and intercompany payable. So you just have two accounts, right? Intercompany receivable, intercompany payable, and you have no other dimension in your general ledger for the journal entry that says, who's that counterparty? Yeah. Good luck in a full consolidation, right? You'll be able to consolidate at the parent level. You'll be able to you'll be able to you'll be able to show each individual and say, oh, that's intercompany, intercompany. But you will never be able to unwind everything. So the tip there is usually the best practice I've seen is to have a uh, a separate dimension for an intercompany trend for that that's only used for intercompany entries that shows the counterparty. Because for every for every debit there is a credit. And uh, and that is that is the only pro tip I have in this. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much, Aaron. So, Tom, I'm actually going to come to you. Best practices or horror stories that you have seen uh, with respect to financial consolidation? Well, maybe best practice in a sense. I, I, I One of the comments Abu made jarred my memory. Um, and in, in my ERP experience, you know, we, we really tried to institute, uh, this was in the SAP ERP solution, you know, something called a stock transfer order that would do what you were talking about, Abu, create the, the sales order and the purchase order across the two legal entities, in a sense, as mirror images of the, each other. And one of the things that that did, aside from just creating parallel and matching transactions and ultimately uh, interrelated and hopefully matching, in some sense, accounting entries, it also handled something that, that didn't come up on, uh, so far, which was the, the challenge of in-transit uh, goods uh, when intercompany transactions are happening. And again, back to Aaron's comment, like, was it a sale? Well, if it was a sale, wouldn't it be off our books? Probably. And, you know, but it's not really, it's on somebody's books. It's just intercompany and that can get a little gray or, or messy. But um, some of those tools that do that, that simultaneous buy sell um, with kind of one document that has two sides to it, uh, two sides to a coin in a sense, that oftentimes handles the in-transit issue quite well, um, as I've seen. So uh, that was one thing that came up that I know in in, uh, projects I've been involved in historically uh, where people didn't use that kind of functionality and they were trying to do it all with the the traditional sales order, purchase order, and they weren't being created simultaneously and weren't integrated automatically. That got out of sync. Uh, somebody would fail to create the PO or or it would not match in some sense. Somebody would receive against maybe a different document um, and, and all kinds of things would go wrong because it wasn't structured uh, seamlessly and, and in an integrated way. So that was kind of one thing I thought that's that what Abu brought up was a good uh, best practice. Also, uh, one of the things that, that Aaron referred to a couple of times was all the different financial 
reporting requirements, whether it's uh, tax reporting or SEC type financial reporting or, or other forms, regulatory reporting, and a couple times brought up managerial reporting. And I know that that has been challenging in, in new and different ways from kind of everything we've discussed up until now, and we won't have time to get into it, but just, just the idea of the buy-sell from the U.S. to you know, some other country, that product that's now in France or wherever it might be that gets sold to an end customer, you know, we tend to think of these things as very, in very simplistic terms um, and say, well, you know, we sold it out of the U.S. for you know, a certain amount above maybe you know, cost plus 5%. And then France got that cost plus 5% was their cost. And then they sold it for another 25%. On top of that, so you know, in some you know math, I'm not doing it in my head here, but you know, maybe there was a a a 30% margin or something on the on the on the on the, on the um, original cost um, at a consolidated global level. But if that product that they sold in France was part of a multi-item sales order, and they decided that the customer is very sensitive to this product's price. So I'm going to really use it as a loss leader and I'm going to get my margin on these other items on this order. And now we're trying to do maybe managerial profit center reporting, consolidating across the globe on the margin of this product line. But, you know, in different locales, it's being handled differently uh, in terms of, you know, in, in France, they're using it as a loss leader to, to pull in a whole bunch of other uh, sale items, whereas in the U.S. it's pretty much a standalone. We have straightforward, uh, you know, deals with our customers. And now the, the the product management team is trying to say, well, what's our global margin on this product? Let's do a, a consolidation at a profit center level. And you know, you're like, well, but France's margins are all screwed up. How? Like, what's going on? And it's it's because that that idea of even even profit center is is masking or is not really addressing other complexities of multi-line item complex orders and how people will manage that pricing at, at, at the local level. So just the, the, the there's so many challenges. I, I, I you know, we, we, we touched on transfer pricing a little bit and that's a whole nother topic. It's, it's related, but boy, it's a whole nother can of worms. And, uh, so there's I have I have horror stories about that if we ever want to talk about that. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Tom, for that. So uh Bob, I'm actually gonna come to you and we are super short on time right now. I don't know if you're gonna have any closing comments and we are gonna close after that. Yeah, I was just gonna say my closing comment is still a little bit from Aaron, but I wrote it down first just so we're clear. Know your entity and really understand the transactions between the two. I mean that's just really your starting point. That's you've got to gotta understand that so you can really build the architecture. And hopefully you're doing it from a good starting point, not from a really messy acquisition starting point. All right. Amazing. So guys, that's it for today. If you joined for the first time, this was part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5 30 p.m. Eastern. We always pick one topic related to digital transformation and we always have an expert panel that is willing to share them, their insights and wisdom so make sure you are not going to miss next week's show we are going to be here on that note thanks uh once again everybody for your insights and time great conversation guys thanks thank you take care see you guys i cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show for sharing their knowledge and journey i always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today if you want to learn more about tom Rodden, Follow and connect with him on LinkedIn. If you want to learn more about Chris Garadini, head over to turnkeytech.com. It's C-U-R-N-K-E-Y-T-E-C.com. If you want to learn more about Aaron Spool, head over to aventusag.com. It's E-V-E-N-T-U-S-A-G.com. If you want to learn more about Bob Feathers, head over to bindable.com. It's B-I-N-D-A-B-L-E.com. If you want to learn more about Abu Asif, head over to pennymanagement.com. It's P-A-N-N-I-M-A-N-A-G-E-M-E-N-T.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Jim Downs, who shares his insights into the importance of tracking meaningful financial KPIs to improve
profitability and growth for CPG companies. Also, the interview with Aaron Spool from Aventus Advisory Group, who describes what it means to have a cash flow mindset in the organization. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to get you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.